Make your way in your copy of the scriptures to Matthew chapter 5. Join me in Matthew chapter 5. We begin this morning into the teaching ministry of our Lord in the Sermon on the Mount. And we have, just in the last couple of weeks, gone from the introduction into the actual ministry life of our Lord. And we did an introductory look at the Sermon on the Mount two weeks ago and then had a break for Thanksgiving and uh, took a look at our responsibility to be living Thanksgiving as a habit, not just as a holiday. And now we make our way back to Matthew chapter 5 and begin the actual teaching from the Sermon on the Mount or on the Plateau as we find in Luke chapter 6. Why don't you join me in reading and we'll get ourselves re- Acquainted with Matthew chapter 5, we'll read verses 1 through 12 together. You can follow along in your copy of God's Word. Verse 1 says, Seeing the crowds, he, that being Jesus, went up on the mountain. When he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And this is the word of the Lord this morning. Two weeks ago, we took time to look at a road map for the Sermon on the Mount. And if you remember, if I can jar your memory from two weeks ago, I know it's hard to remember what happened yesterday, but if I can go back two weeks in your memory, we studied the foundation for the sermon in the context of verses 1 and 2. We examined the flow of the sermon and did a bird's eye view of the whole. And the Sermon on the Mount is a unified whole. And then we concluded with a look at the function of the sermon for our particular life in this particular setting that we study it. So how is the sermon to function today, 2007, in the local church, in the body of Christ. And that was the conclusion of our overview look at the sermon. We looked particularly in the function and emphasized particularly that the sermon is all about our hearts first. It's all about the inner man. It's about our hearts. And then secondly, the sermon is all about the kingdom. It is a kingdom sermon. It is addressing kingdom citizens It is providing a kingdom ethic. It is the manifesto of the king himself as the teacher. And so its function is to address our hearts, and we will certainly see that this morning. And its function is to prepare us and to alert us to the realities of the kingdom. We took time to think about the kingdom in the reality that the kingdom has been inaugurated. It has come in the person of the king. And yet it has not been consummated, it has not been brought to fullness because the king has not yet returned to establish the final, the final kingdom of heaven here on earth and the new kingdom 
the new heaven and the new earth. He has not come back to sit on the throne of David to establish Jerusalem again as the headquarters for the worship of the one true God. Now, just a few reminders that will help us this morning as we begin into what is commonly called the Beatitudes. And this, of course, we are met with familiarity as our greatest enemy in our study. And so just a few reminders to help prepare your heart and my heart for our study. The sermon and the Beatitudes are concerned most importantly with who you are, not what you do or what you can do. This is not a directive for you this morning to change something about you. It is to declare and to remind you of who you are. What is reality? This is about being. And later, we will, after we have established the being, we will meet the doing. And so the indicative will meet the imperative. The statement of fact that is going to be the centerpiece of our study this morning and throughout these Beatitudes, will in, in time have a command attached to it. It will have a lifestyle that is directly connected to it. But this morning, and for several weeks, we are going to be addressing who we are, looking internally, examining our lives internally to evaluate our standing as citizens within the kingdom. The sermon is also the norm for kingdom citizens. It is not impossible. So as we begin, we're going to be struck with the overwhelming content that is here. And yet these things are reality. They are possible for those who are citizens within the kingdom. And of course, they're only possible because of the relationship of the citizens to the king himself. Correct? These in and of yourself would certainly be impossible And if you're here this morning and do not know Christ, you have no relationship with the King, then these should strike you as overwhelming responsibilities, overwhelming calls for your heart condition. The sermon is a unified whole. It is not to be broken into pieces. I was reading one author this week, and I owe so much to... I tease when people come into my office and I say, these are my friends... I owe a lot to my friends. I read older men. Many of them have long since gone to be with the Lord. One of them was talking about his preaching through the Sermon on the Mount and constantly being frustrated by people coming and saying, I can't wait till you get to this paragraph because I really want to see where you take this or how you apply this. He's frustrated because the sermon is not to be diced up. It's not to be used, cut apart, pulled out, use a segment, and, and disregard the remainder, it is a logical flow and is a unified whole. So we're going to take this from the top to the bottom. And I think if we follow along and if you're able to stay with me and I'm able to communicate clearly to you, we'll see the flow of what God intends for us to understand in the Sermon on the Mount. These first verses, beginning in verse 3, have so much to do with the remainder of this sermon. In fact, they are foundational. If we miss the Beatitudes, we cannot, we cannot apply the ethical demands that we find throughout the remainder of chapter 5 all the way through chapter 7. So let me remind you this morning, it's addressing your heart. It's concerned with who you are first. And that has a direct consequence in what you do 
It is a unified whole, not to be broken into pieces, and it is a logical order that we will follow. If we miss the beginning, we will not get the middle, nor will we get or apply the end. And so this book, this section, this sermon is to be taken as a unified whole. We finally reached the plateau on the mountainside. I've been waiting for this for a long time. In my mind, I picture Christ sitting down, preparing to teach. And as he sits down, the large crowd that's there goes quiet, as would have been necessary without amplification. And Jesus begins to teach the people. Just on a personal note, these Beatitudes are particularly important to me because these Beatitudes were the very first assignment I was ever given in consecutive Bible teaching. I think I, was, I think I was a junior in college, maybe a senior. I think I was a junior in college, and I was, I was given the responsibility to be the chaplain, to be the Bible teacher for Beta Gamma Delta, and for our Sunday school hour together, our Bible study time, we went through the Beatitudes. And so this was the beginning for me of seeing God's Word unfold verse by verse and having the opportunity to study it in consecutive order. And so it's like a family reunion. It's like coming home to be back in the Beatitudes, and I'm excited for our time here together. The demands are unbelievable, and yet the king has provided everything needed to live as a kingdom citizen. His people are sufficiently equipped for the responsibility that's theirs and the reality that is theirs in their hearts. All that brings us to verse 3, and our attention will be focused this morning on one verse. We have spent much time committing ourselves to paragraph teaching, and we have not departed from that this morning. This one verse is a paragraph in and of itself. It is the first point that Jesus makes, and it is the foundational point for the remainder of the sermon. Blessed, verse 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This group of people that are described as the poor in spirit are, are labeled as blessed people, and they are particularly blessed because they, in present tense, have inherited the kingdom. This group is marked out as a blessed people because they are the ones who have inherited the blessings of the kingdom. This is their reality. And so it is our job this morning, it's my job this morning, and along with you to examine what it is that sets this group of people apart, that they are blessed in this special way, that they are the inheritors of the kingdom of heaven. And it begins, really, we have to begin with the first word, and examine what it is to be blessed. This is vital because the remainder of these verses are going to repeat this word. We won't do this every week, but this morning it's necessary for us to approach and give attention to the word blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. What is the meaning? What is the sense of blessed? It's the crucial first word in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's vital that we get the clear intent. If you're taking notes this morning, let me 
first of all, comment that the word blessed is not just glee or human happiness. The word, in its original form, the word does carry the sense of happiness, but the word happy has fallen on hard times in our culture. To talk about being happy can mean any range of any range of joy. It can be the most temporary happiness to the most permanent. So it is not just a sense of human happiness. This is not saying blessed is the poor in spirit. Happy is the one who's poor in spirit the same way you're happy when you open a Christmas gift that is exactly what you wanted. Uh, this is totally different kind of happiness. This is not the same happiness that you have before you eat your lobster meal. I was going to say after, but sometimes that's not happiness. This isn't the same. Or that steak. This isn't the happiness that you have when your wife said yes and you were down on one knee asking her to marry you. It's not the same. It's a totally different happiness and it has so much more weight that we need to consider this morning. Blessedness, from a biblical standpoint, is a state of being resulting from someone else blessing you. That is, showing favor to you. And and you understand, this isn't like rocket science. If you're blessed, if you are identified as a blessed person, it is because someone else has shown favor and has blessed you. Man can bless man. We can show favor to one another, and I could say to you, you have been a blessing to me. You have blessed me. I am blessed because of you. Blessing can be from man to man in an equal sense. Blessing can be from man to God. And many of you this morning have blessed the heart of God. He has been blessed because you have shown favor to Him. You have worshipped Him. You have placed Him on His rightful throne. You have exalted His name. You have sung praises to Him. Your hearts have come before Him in prayer and in response to the Word. And you are a blessing to God. You're a sweet-smelling aroma to His nostrils. You are a blessing. But finally, and most importantly, God can bless man. And that is the case throughout the Beatitudes. The blessed man and woman of the Beatitudes, the blessed people group of the citizens of the kingdom, are blessed by God. God is granting favor to man. say, why is this so important? Because God only blesses man when he condescends in grace and grants a unique blessing, and it is an internal and it is an eternal blessing from God to man. You understand that? God cannot show favor to mankind without condescending to them. In other words, there must be some means for God, who is holy and perfect, to provide favor and show kindness to sinful humanity. The kingdom citizens are blessed because God has condescended from His throne in heaven and He has shown favor to people, to sinful people. That is the definition that we must bring theologically to the word blessed. These people, these groupings are blessed because God has condescended 
and granted them favor. He has shown favor and kindness to them. And in this case, he has given them the kingdom. God only condescends to mankind, to sinful humanity, through the person of his Son. Through the very speaker of these words, the King himself is the means of the blessedness of the poor in spirit. Kingdom citizens are these blessed individuals whom God has graced with real joy and real happiness. In other words, true happiness, true biblical Godward happiness belongs only to those who possess the following internal realities. Right? Don't miss this because this will be the staple for the remainder of our study of the Beatitudes. There is no happiness. There is no genuine true, eternal, and internal happiness apart from the internal realities that we're going to study this morning and for the weeks to come. And your sinful life and my sinful life is just an expression of us trying to get happiness from counterfeit sources. You'll never be blessed unless these are the realities of who you are. You'll never be truly and eternally happy. Sin will only bring happiness for a moment. And its end will be punishment. And so here we have identified a blessed people. A grouping of people that are blessed, and in particular this morning they are blessed because they have the present inheritance and the future prospect of the kingdom of heaven. They are identified as the poor in spirit. So seeing the foundational understanding, we come now to the first statement of the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm going I'm to divide this up into three questions. Three questions that can guide our examination of the idea of poverty in spirit. What is it to be in this group of those who are poor in spirit? What are the realities of the heart? What are the realities of what is at stake in those who are identified as the poor in spirit. So these are the three questions. What is meant by poor in spirit? That's crucial. What does it mean? What does poor in spirit oppose? What does it stand against? If you have poverty in your spirit, what are you opposed to? And then finally, what does poor in spirit promote? What is the promotion? What is the life that is promoted the heartbeat that is promoted by this poverty in spirit. Okay, three questions to help us examine the Lord's words to his disciples at the beginning of this sermon. Now, we cannot understand properly the remainder of the Beatitudes or the entire sermon without understanding properly verse 3. It is the overarching heading. It is the basis for all the remainder of the sermon. So let's ask ourselves this morning and ask the Word of God, what is meant by poor in spirit? What does that mean? How do you know if you are identified in that group? What is poverty in spirit? Well, first and foremost this morning, let me say this. We must establish that poverty spoken of here is not physical, it is spiritual, right? The of spirit is a small s. It's a spiritual poverty. This is not physical poverty. There has been a lot of confusion, believe it or not, about what is communicated here. 
It is not blessed is the spirit of the poor. And error after error throughout the history of the church has seen this as if poverty is the blessing. This is the standard of all those that we see in religious settings that would claim Christianity, that sell everything they have, isolate themselves from all common comforts, and live in imposed, self-imposed poverty. This is not a physical poverty. It is a spiritual poverty. Physical poverty in Scripture provides a ready opportunity for humility. Right? You read through your Old Testament, you read through your New Testament, and you see that the poor, those who have been humbled by their earthly circumstances, are more prone to a right understanding of who they are before God. Riches provide an opportunity for us to think more highly of our own standing than we should. And it is harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Riches make it difficult. Poverty may provide an opportunity for humility. And yet, poverty in a human sense or in a physical sense does not guarantee blessing from God, nor is it a spiritual virtue. So if this morning you've taken great pride in your poverty, let me remind you that we're discussing a spiritual poverty this morning. So, first and foremost, we're speaking in the terms spiritual, inner, not external or physical. Poor in spirit. What is the description of the poverty that is described here? Let me, let me try to explain it to you this way. Poverty in spirit, poor in spirit, this grouping of people is a group that is spiritually bankrupt. This is a mindset, this is an understanding of a man standing before God and seeing his account from his heart. What is there internally that I have to offer before the king? Nothing. Not only is the well dry, not only is the account empty, I am so overdrawn that I'll never be able to pay back the debt that is mine to a holy God. My only hope is to declare bankruptcy and hope for a pardon from my debt. It is the total spiritual destitution that recognizes no resource within oneself. It is the quality of one who has checked his spiritual account balance and found it to be empty. Blessed are the poor in spirit. This is the amazing paradox of the teaching of Jesus. You want true joy? You want true happiness? You want lasting, eternal, internal happiness? The only people who are categorized as those people, those who have true happiness are those who have seen themselves as absolutely worthless before God. Having nothing to offer the King. Jesus' message is that those who are self-recognized spiritual losers are those who are truly blessed. These are the nobodies. These are the people that recognize they've got nothing. They've got nothing to offer these are the grouping of people. This is the grouping of people. These are the people who inherit the kingdom of heaven. And this is seen throughout your scriptures. This theme of God showing favor, God 
blessing those who have come to the end of themselves, who have seen that they have no worth, they have no value before a holy God. He has shown favor and grace. We see this throughout Scripture. In fact, turn with me to to the book of Psalms, the collection of Psalms, and look at Psalm 34. Psalm 34. David is writing and recounting the goodness of the Lord. He begins with, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. In verse 15, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and His ears towards their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. Notice verse 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed. That's a great word. Saves the crushed in spirit. Want to know who comes to saving reality with God? Is those people who have been crushed in their spirit. Their hearts have been shattered. Their confidence has been broken in themselves and they have come poor, poverty-stricken in spirit before God. Turn over a few pages to the 51st Psalm. Psalm 51. We see this theme continued in the middle of the psalm. Many of you know this psalm as the psalm of confession parallel to Psalm 32. In verse 13, the psalmist, now upon his forgiveness, says, Then I will teach the transgressors your ways. This will be my response. I'll teach them, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Isaiah, the great prophet Isaiah, chapter 57. Isaiah is full of this theme. And in verse 15 of chapter 57, we see him recounting this attribute of God, showing favor to those who have come to the end and realize their poverty in spirit. This is God speaking. And it shall be said in verse 14, Build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. This is the theme of God's favor to those who are poor in spirit. Isaiah 66, verse 2. Again, the Lord is speaking Verse 1, he says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? 
All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one whom, whom I will look, to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Who is the one that will have the care and attention of the God Most High? It will be the one who is humble and contrite. It will be the one who is poor in spirit. Spiritually bankrupt, truly humbled. These are those who are blessed eternally and internally, and they are the inheritors of the kingdom of heaven. Let me just boil this all down for you this morning. There are no inheritors of the kingdom of heaven, a.k.a. no one will be in heaven who has not come to this reality. There will be no one in heaven who has, who has not come to the end of themselves and realizes they have nothing to offer. There is no merit within themselves as they stand before God. That is the foundational characteristic of the kingdom. It is the characteristic of true saving faith. As God's people, we battle on and on with our pride and our sin, and yet our hearts have been poor in spirit. We have seen the reality of the emptiness of our own goodness. And in grace, God has granted us favor. He has granted us true happiness. Now, because of the meaning of poor in spirit, it begs the question, what does it stand against? What does the poverty of spirit that we're discussing oppose in our world today? Spiritual poverty opposes the entire worldview of our present culture. Right? Everything that the world tells you flies in the face of true happiness coming from poverty in spirit. The message of the world is, at, if we were to put an umbrella message, it is believe in yourself. Believe in yourself. This goes from the earliest ages all the way through to the advertising that goes on on your television set every day. Believe in yourself. Think highly of your value. You can accomplish whatever you set your mind to. You have the power within you to reach your goals. Put yourself on display, for you have unique abilities and power. When you don't have it, fake it, and you will be seen as successful. Self-reliance, self-confidence, and self-expression are the greatest virtues and the greatest keys to happiness. In other words, the world says if you want happiness, it's all about you. It's all about you valuing your own ability, your own worth, your own value. The Word of God says, those who are truly happy, those who are eternally and internally blessed, and those who will inherit the kingdom of God are the exact opposite of those who would go through life believing in themselves. It is the life of faith that says, I will not believe in myself. I'll set aside myself and I will believe in something other than myself. I will believe in one, Jesus Christ. 
So the Beatitudes begin with a bang. Poverty in spirit is the reality of the kingdom citizen. And they are blessed. And they are particularly blessed because they have inherited the kingdom of heaven and they will see that inheritance in its culmination at the return of Christ. That's sad to say, but today in the church, the world's philosophy, the world's view on life has infiltrated our present-day churches. The reality that those who carry themselves with the most confidence, those who have the highest confidence in their own abilities, those who have the most flash, the most status, those are the ones that are truly happy. Those are the ones to be respected and to be looked to. And yet that stands in opposition to the very words of our Lord Jesus Christ. True happiness is for those who realize they have nothing. They are spiritual nobodies. Spiritual poverty opposes not only the world's message, but it opposes any external attempt on your part to put it on. Now don't miss this. There is no external work that you can do to generate poorness in spirit. Let me tell you what the wrong question for you to be asking this morning. What's the wrong question? The wrong question is, how can I get poor in spirit? What can I do to generate poverty in spirit? The very nature of someone who has come to the end of themselves and sees no value in their own merit before God flies in the face of a question that would say, how can I, in and of myself, what can I do, what steps can I take to make sure that this is true about me? We'll address the application of this truth in just a few moments. You can't fake poorness of spirit. You can't externally look like poor in spirit. Sometimes people want to appear humble with weakness or quietness, a lack of courage or boldness to speak. Well, I'm just a humble guy. I just don't have any worth. Self-effacing speech that betrays a self-centeredness. I'm just a low life. What could I ever do? False humility in any fashion. Mere external conformity will never cut it for the standard of of the citizens of the kingdom. Don't shortchange yourself. The Beatitudes call for internal realities. You can't make them happen on the outside. You can fool us. You can fool your family. But the internal quality of poverty of spirit is outside of your ability to make happen. Now this is crucial. Don't miss this. Spiritual poverty is concerned primarily with men standing before God rather than men standing before men. One of the common misunderstandings of this section is that we will be poor in spirit towards each other. This this particular instruction from our Lord, this particular information is, is driven particularly at our relationship before God first. The poverty of spirit, the one who is spiritually bankrupt, is not when we stare back at one another. It is when we look at God and we see ourselves in contrast to His character and to His nature that we find ourselves either shored up in our pride and our arrogance against Him or broken and shattered and crushed in our spirit, humbled before Him. 
if we stand in spiritual poverty before God, the expressions of that humility in our lives will take care of themselves. Does that make sense? You want to be humble before others? You want to live a humble life? Poverty of spirit before God is the prerequisite to humility with men. In other words, those who have not humbled themselves before God, those who have not been broken in their spirit, who have not been crushed and made poverty stricken in their hearts, even external humility is an act of pride on their part. It is an act of merit gaining on their part. You say, how can someone who is a humanitarian, who gives up everything to help others, who obviously puts the cares and concerns of others above themselves for a lifetime, how can that not be a Christian? Well, this is the simple fact. If their hearts have not been crushed, if they have not recognized themselves as bankrupt in earning merit with God, then all of their activities, all of their external humility is an act of pride because it is a claim that I am working out my way before a holy God. And that righteousness is nothing more than a filthy rag. That is the word of the Lord. So, we've seen what poverty in spirit entails. We've seen what it stands against. And now I want to talk just for a moment about what it promotes. Spiritual poverty promotes utter humility in you and in me before God. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones outlines it this way, Poverty in spirit promotes a departure from confidence in anything other than the grace of God. If you are known for your confidence in your family, in your nationality, in your natural temperament, in your position in life, your status in your money or your possessions, if you take confidence in your education or the schools that you went to, if you take confidence in your morality, your conduct, your behavior, and these are the standard by which you measure yourself, then you do not understand what poverty in spirit promotes because it sets all those behind. Paul calls all of the previous life, all of the merit earned in his Hebrew upbringing, a pile of trash, a dung heap, rubbish in comparison to knowing Christ. Poverty in spirit promotes an understanding that I have nothing to offer God. It is all His offering to me. It is His grace. I am undeserving in every way. There is no spiritual worth. There is nothing in my account but sin and debt to a perfect God. This is spiritual poverty, and it's the blessed life of the kingdom of heaven. Say, what will heaven be like? Heaven will be relating to a multitude of those who have been crushed and who glory only in the Lamb who was slain on their behalf, who understand fully that they have had nothing to bring to the table They have nothing in which they can place their confidence unless God intervenes on their behalf. It is at that humility, it is at that poverty in spirit that God grants grace. He gives grace to the humble. 
but he resists the proud. I thought it would be interesting just in conclusion to look at a few responses of those who were poor in spirit and who came face to face with the living God. Back in Isaiah, we have a common passage, common section of scripture. Many of you know this. Many of you have studied this extensively. Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet Isaiah is swept into a vision of heaven and God himself. And he says in verse 1 of Isaiah 6, in, that, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. That's Jesus, according to John 12, 41. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. And with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Here is Isaiah. He comes into the presence of Jesus Christ pre-incarnation, the glory of God. The angels are shouting the holiness of God and the glory of God through all the earth. He is overcome with this reality. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And here is Isaiah's response. Here's poverty in spirit put to words. Woe is me, verse 5 says, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Overwhelmed with this reality that he stood before the holy God, he shouted, woe is me. Who will help me? In John's Gospel, we see the disciples at the Transfiguration in John 17. I'm sorry, Luke 17. We see the Transfiguration of our Lord. It's not Luke 17. I have the wrong passage written down. At the Transfiguration of our Lord which my brain is freezing to tell you where that is, we find the disciples of Christ come face to face with the two prophets and with the Lord Himself in all of His glory. And I'll stop looking so that I can think. And their response to Jesus and to the the prophets there in all their glory is to fall on their face. That is their natural response They stand before Him. They see Him for who He is. They see Him in all of His glory. And their response is to fall down like they were dead. And the Apostle John, not in the Gospel of John, but in Revelation chapter 1, responds in like form. This was the beloved Apostle. John spent time with the Lord. He lay beside Him. He ate with Him. He talked with Him. And yet he sees Christ in His resurrected form And we see this response from John in Revelation 1. And it is in Revelation 1. Verse 12, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. You can understand the amazing, overwhelming visual that John is seeing. I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. 
His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like that, like the sun shining in full strength. And John says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, for I am the first and the last the living, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. goes on to tell him to write what he is about to see. Those who have come face to face with God are left undeniably poor in spirit, falling in humility before him. So finally, how does one see poverty in spirit or poorness in spirit develop in their life? If you're the, here this morning and you're saying, I, I see the reality of this demand, I see the internal nature of this, and I am, I'm asking, how is it that this would be brought about in my life? Let me lay out some guidelines for you this morning. If you're here this morning and you desire to see poverty in spirit renewed, or if you desire and desire to know poverty in spirit for the first time, let me point you in the right direction. First of all, this poverty in spirit will not result from you looking at yourself. It will result from you looking at God. Look to God See Him for who He is. Acknowledge His greatness and His glory. Turn to His Word to see Him revealed. Look to the King, His Son, Jesus Christ. For it is in seeing God for who He is in reality, it is in that moment that you alone in that moment will have opportunity for poverty, for destitution, for bankruptcy in your spirit. See God for who He is, and you will see your poverty for what it is. Without poverty, no one will see the kingdom of heaven. We could paraphrase this first beatitude. Eternally happy are those who recognize their spiritual worthlessness, for they are the only inheritors of the kingdom. These are the first words of the great manifesto of the king. This is the first and umbrella reality of all kingdom citizens. They have been brought to poverty in spirit. And their reward is great. They will be given the inheritance to the kingdom of heaven. This is a gift of grace. This should leave us in awe of grace. That when we come to the end of ourselves, when we have nothing to offer and we realize it, when we see all of our righteousness as worthless because our sin has permeated all of our being and we turn and we look to Christ as our substitute, as our stand-in for our punishment and we place our faith in His work and in His righteousness and in His obedience that God in His kindness shows mercy and He grants favor to sinful men. This is the testimony of every citizen of the kingdom. It's your testimony this morning, if you have come to saving faith in Christ, that he brought you to the end of yourself, and he brought you to the person and the work of Jesus. This is the testimony of all who will be in heaven for an eternity. 
And this is not your testimony if you have never humbled yourself before God. And I call you to humility this morning. God is your creator. He is holy and perfect in every way. And he demands perfect righteousness from you as his created being. That's a problem because you cannot live that righteousness. You are a sinner by birth and by action. You are in desperate need of a savior, of a substitute, and he has provided it. In his kindness and in his love for humanity, he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him should not perish, would not die, would not be eternally separated from the presence of God in a real and literal hell, but would be saved and given eternal life. These are the great realities of the word of God. And this is the word of the Lord for us this morning.